One of the most memorable lines of the past two decades in video games was delivered not by a character in a game, but by an executive on stage. My name is Reggie. I'm about kicking ass. I'm about taking names. And we're about making games. That was Reggie Fisame introducing himself during Nintendo's presentation at the E3 convention in Los Angeles in 2004. The line represented a new attitude from Nintendo, a statement that the legendary game company had not given up in its battle against the would-be bosses of the industry, Sony and Microsoft. It marked the beginning of a resurgence for the Japanese company and its Redmond, Washington-based subsidiary, Nintendo of America, which Fisame would go on to lead as president and chief operating officer. But it actually was not how that line was originally drafted. The last-minute change is one of many behind-the-scenes stories told by the retired Nintendo of America executive in his new book, Disrupting the Game, From the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. The book combines Fisame's life story with leadership insights and some eye-opening anecdotes for fans of Nintendo and video games, including inside details about his working relationships with legendary game designer Shigeru Miyamoto and late Nintendo president and CEO Satoru Iwata. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Reggie Fisame joins us on this episode of the GeekWire podcast to talk about his career, his book, and what's next in video games. He also shares the story of that pivotal introductory line, how it was originally supposed to be delivered, and the larger significance of the change that was made on the eve of the event. That's coming up in the second segment. But first, we start with the story behind the book. Reggie, thank you very much for talking with me. Oh, absolutely. Todd, great to be with you again. I've always enjoyed our conversations, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. And I'm a passionate listener to the podcast, so it's uh, it's very exciting for me. That's great. I know our listeners are excited to hear from you. We teased it on a show recently and, and heard some positive reactions. Your new book is Disrupting the Game, From the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. Of course, you joined Nintendo in 2003. You had a long career before that, which you get into as part of the book, but much of it focuses on Nintendo. Why was it important for you to write this book? You know, I believe that my journey is a compelling one as a first-generation American as the, the first in my immediate family to go to an American university. The journey that I had uh, and continue to have is an untraditional one in terms of the choices I've made, the impact I've had on businesses, and the impact that I've had on people. And for me now, in this part of my life's work, which is sharing lessons, sharing principles, and I do that a variety of different ways through the book, through my board service, through the speeches and other engagements that I do, I saw it as just an opportunity to share, an opportunity to hopefully inspire that next generation of leaders, whether they're in business, philanthropic efforts, whatever that individual's journey is, to, uh, to give the benefit of my, um, of my life's journey as they undertake theirs. One of the things that I like about the book is that it 
is not just about business. It's also your personal story, but each of the personal stories that you tell has a larger point. What were you trying to get across in terms of the business lessons through the stories that you told? You know, so first, I I need to be clear. When I started thinking about doing a book, the first idea was something very different. Um, I, I didn't want to create something that would be too personal at the start. So my first idea for a book was focusing on all of the real world lessons that you could learn from playing video games. And it, it was a very provocative idea. And as I shared that with uh, literary agents and other people, they told me, you know, Reggie, that's a great speech. And I have turned it into a speech. Um, but it's not, they, they didn't believe it would be a really compelling book. They believe that what an audience wanted to hear was a bit more of the personal journey. But then taking that feedback, I, I wanted to create something that was a whole piece of cloth that, yes, would have key steps and key decisions that I made in my own personal journey, but I wanted it to link to key lessons that any reader, any listener to the audiobook could take and apply to their own life. And in the way that I typically do things, which tends to be analytical and strategic in nature, as I started creating the book, I went and read so many other business memoirs And what I found was that typically these business memoirs were, in fact, two different books. The first half was the person's life story, and then the second half were the life lessons. And I I fundamentally believe that, for me, I wanted to do something that was more complete in terms of, for every story I would share, I would include what I called the so what. I would include the purpose the key lesson, the key principle to take away so that it, it really would all flow together versus feeling like two separate books that have been smushed together. Lesson number one, don't let your kid get near your game console when you're about to finish the last Zelda level. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and it, it, you know, what's, what's so interesting about that story, so that story happens while I am an executive at Pizza Hut. You know, throughout my uh, teenage years, you know, I played a lot of video games. I, I played the earliest of systems, Coleco, Atari, And then as I had a family, I stepped away from playing games, but then started again in the 1990s with the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Myself and my family, we played together, and The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past became an obsession for me. I would go to work at Pizza Hut and then come home, eat dinner, and then play for hours on end. My son had his own save file, right? These were back in the days where... On a cartridge-based system, you could only have two different save files. So he would watch how I would progress and, uh, and then play on his own. And so literally, I was, I was at the final boss, you know, 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning. I had to get up to go to work the next day. So I stopped playing to get a couple hours of sleep. And obviously, he gets home that day from school, sees where I am, and proceeds for the next you know, four hours or so to try and beat the final boss, which he did literally just as I was entering the house. I could hear him screaming oh. and yelling with joy. 
But uh, Todd, the, the best part of this story is at an industry event that was honoring Shigeru Miyamoto, arguably one of the all-time best game creators who created not only Mario and Donkey Kong, but also created the Legend of Zelda franchise. So I, uh, I get up in front of a room of a thousand people and tell this story about how my son beat that final level and how Mr. Miyamoto touched me even before I was ever an executive at Nintendo. And he was so funny. I come, we, I come back to the table. I sit next to him after he's accepted his award and made his own comments. And he leans over to me, he says, Reggie-san. And, and all of the, the Nintendo executives would call me Reggie-san. He says, Reggie-san, was that story true? <laughs> as, as if I would have made this up. And, uh, and I told him that, absolutely, absolutely true. You, this is the way you touched me. This is the way Nintendo games touch our players. Uh, but a, um, a, a, very, uh, a very fun moment in time, even before I was part of, uh, part of the, the Nintendo business. The story struck me in part because one of the folks that I talked to frequently over the years it was your counterpart at Microsoft, Robbie Bach. And Robbie understands the business clearly, I'm sure was a tough competitor to you over the years. Robbie is not a gamer. And he admits that. To what extent did your experience as a gamer, clearly you were passionate, staying up until 3 a.m. when you had a serious job to do the next day, to what extent did that inform your approach as the leader of Nintendo of America? And what are the takeaways that folks can take from that about their own careers? It highly informed my approach, my credibility, uh, even the relationship that I had with the Nintendo fan base. And, and I have to say, Todd, at every stage in my career, I had a passionate link back to the product that I was working on, whether it was baking pies and cookies while I worked on the Crisco shortening business while I was at Procter & Gamble, uh, which my kids still remind me that, you know, I need to get back to, to baking pies. They love the pies that I would make. <laughs> But, you know, at, at every point in my career, I had a passion for the, the product that I was working on. So, you know, that's the first insight that I would share is, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, you better have a passion for it. Robbie and I are good friends and, and he has shared these same stories. I, I, I never quite understood how you couldn't have a passion for playing the product. But, you know, that's that's his story to tell. For me, uh, knowing Nintendo's franchises knowing the industry as a player really informed me as I was approached for the Nintendo of America head of sales and marketing job. What I saw as the opportunities, what I saw as the, the key relationships that I needed to build. And it absolutely helped me uh, connect with the senior most executives in uh, our Japanese parent in Kyoto. It absolutely helped me with the fans as they saw that I played the games. I love the content. And, uh, and it, it certainly was a critical part in my journey and my success at Nintendo. Speaking of establishing your credibility with the fans, there was a key moment at E3 in 2004. And we're going to go behind the scenes of that coming up next. You're listening to GeekWire, and we will be right back. 
I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. We are speaking with Reggie Fisame, the former president and COO of Nintendo of America. His new book is Disrupting the Game, From the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. Reggie, I was there in Southern California covering Nintendo and E3 for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer newspaper back in 2004. And I remember you coming on stage, and I didn't know who you were. Many people in the audience didn't know who you were. Can you please remind us of the line that you delivered to let people know who you were. The line was, my name is Reggie. I'm about kicking ass. I'm about taking names and we're about playing games. And in the book, I, I share, you know, the, the full backstory of how that moment in time came to be. And, you know, it, it's, it's an incredible story in part because, you know, as I joined the company, while everyone sees today the success that Nintendo's had these last number of years, people need to remember in 2003, as I joined the company, Nintendo was in a pretty difficult situation. And, and that's because the Sony PS2 was dominating the marketplace. Microsoft had entered the video game industry with the original Xbox. Nintendo was competing with its GameCube. And here in the United States, the GameCube was in third place. On a global basis, GameCube was in second place. But that's only because at the time, Microsoft really hadn't yet fully developed its European business uh, with video games, hadn't developed its Asian business with video games. So on the home console front, Nintendo was under tremendous pressure. And the prior year, Sony had announced that it was entering the handheld business. All they said was that they were going to introduce a system called the PlayStation Portable, directly attacking Nintendo's Game Boy business. And with that announcement, Nintendo's share took about a 10% haircut. So that was the backdrop that I was walking into. And the prior E3 press conferences had been um, difficult for Nintendo, uh, a little boring, a little um, you know, negatively received by the press and by the fans. And as I came on board, uh, I, I partnered with our parent company, and in particular, uh, Satoru Wada, the, the chief executive for Global Nintendo, and there was a recognition that we needed to do something different. Coupled with the fact that the company had some stellar products that they were launching at that E3, we were showing off the Nintendo DS for the very first time, which would go on to sell 150 million units, uh, the second best-selling hardware system of, of all time in the video game industry. 
we were showing a trailer for uh, what would become The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. So we had some fantastic content and we wanted to be much more aggressive in tone. We wanted to uh, take uh, the industry by the collar and shake them up a little bit and, and make an impact. And, uh, and that's, that's what we set out to do. And that's where that line came from. However, as you reveal in the book, that was not the way the line was originally to be stated. In fact, up until the eve of the event, you were using a different pronoun in the final phrase. It's fascinating because it's become iconic. You were originally going to say, and I'm about making games. And at the last minute, folks on your team, Perrin Kaplan, who was a longtime communications executive who I know pretty well said, Hey, you know what? This doesn't seem right. And this in and of itself to me was fascinating. Changing that pronoun from I'm to we're. Todd, it was, uh, you, you, you need to imagine, you know, this is roughly, roughly 24 hours before I'm um, to get on stage and deliver this, this line and, and to deliver, you know, 80% of the content from that E3. And all through the rehearsals, it was becoming clear that the line wasn't working because I'm not a game developer. I'm not writing code. I'm not working on art assets. I'm not the one making games. And there was a brief moment where the entire first stanza was going to be redone. You know, imagine a world where my name is Reggie. I'm about kicking ass was never uttered on stage, but we were huh. at that point. And fortunately, you know, working with Perrin, working with another longtime uh, person involved in our communications program, a good friend of mine now, uh, a gentleman by the name of Don Varu, you know, the, the three of us got together and, and wordsmithed the line so that it became we're about making games. We, the broad Nintendo community, our, our business partners, developers like EA and Activision, we're all about making games. And it was, uh, it was just uh, a phenomenal moment in time. To your point, Nintendo of America is largely a translation and marketing and business organization. It's not doing the original ideation creation of the games. And yet one of my takeaways from this book was just how important that marketing and business function actually is. It should not be discounted because there are multiple stories that you tell where the decisions made in Redmond at Nintendo of America were pivotal in the success or failure of a particular system. And one of them was, frankly, a, a decision that you pushed for that was not made, and that was the pricing of the Nintendo 3DS. Can you tell us that story from your perspective? Sure. You know, And, and again, you're, you're absolutely right. When, when you think about an entire product's proposition. I mean, yes, you've got the hardware, you've got the software that uh, that is associated with it, but pricing and positioning and all of those other key parts of the proposition are vitally important. The, the story I tell about the Nintendo 3DS, and so again, to, to put things in perspective, as I stated, the Nintendo DS, massive sales, massive success in the marketplace. Nintendo is considering how to launch its next handheld system. And the focus that we found was on delivering a true 3D 
visual experience without the need for glasses. That was the, the key innovation. And what was really interesting about this is earlier in, uh, in its ongoing hardware development efforts, Nintendo had played with the idea of stereoscopic 3D uh, a number of times, uh, including the launch of the Virtual Boy, which did not succeed in the marketplace. But interestingly, at the same time that they were playing with Virtual Boy, they were also working on the Nintendo 64, which was the first time that 3D visuals were rendered for a video game. Up until that time, everything was, was essentially flat. So we're preparing to launch the Nintendo 3DS. The reception to the product uh, up until that point, as we've been sharing it at events like E3 and other uh, consumer oriented events, very, very positive. But the final decisions that we needed to make around pricing and around the launch lineup were to be done literally just a couple months before the launch of the system. And what we're finding out is that the software pipeline that we had anticipated was not going to be as robust as we initially thought. Games were going to be spread out over a much longer period of time. And a couple key games were going to be as much as nine months after launch. So that's the first data point, right? We're not going to have a strong uh, lineup of games. And then the next data point is really thinking through what's going to be the best optimal price for the hardware. And in the book, I share that you know in, in the Americas, Pricing is done very differently than, let's say, Europe or in Japan. And, and the key insight here is that typically prices end in either $49 or $99 once you get above $100. You know, retailers don't like those in-between price points of, of, let's say, $69 or $79. The other key insight is in the video game business, hardware is sold at a fairly low retail margin. And so, you know, Mr. Satura Wada and I are having a hot debate as to what's the best price for the Nintendo 3DS. And I'm advocating aggressively that we needed to launch the system at $199. You know, under $200, you know, a key consumer and retailer price point. But the, uh, the cost for the hardware uh, is high in terms of our own manufacturing costs. And uh, he's asking me, can we launch at you know 229 or 239? And the you know I, I gave him the candid answer, which was no, that if we did that, likely retailers would increase their own margin and the price would go up to 249 anyhow. that the really only two options were 199 or 249. And regrettably, the system was launched at 249. And what happened was, you know, the, the, the first two, three months sales for the system were quite strong. And this is a truism for not only Nintendo, but, but the industry overall. You tend to have a passionate fan base that will buy your new systems almost at any price. And that happened with the Nintendo 3DS. But then, Reaching that next tranche of consumers, they were balking at the price and they were balking at the fact that some of the key games supporting this hardware were not available and would not be available for another, you know, up to six months. 
And so the, the sales of Nintendo 3DS literally hit a wall about, uh, about three months after launch. And, and you could have said, I told you so. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the um, you know, so for everyone listening, trying to learn on their own personal journey, typically telling someone, I told you so, is not a good response. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, you know, my, my role was to, uh, to initially support the decision, um, even though I didn't make the sale as to what I wanted to do. But then also to problem solve as things were going sideways and to figure out what's the best next step from there. Um, and in the end, you know, Nintendo took a massive uh, price decline all the way from 249 to 169 out in mm. the marketplace. Devastated the company's profitability for a couple of years. In the end, the Nintendo 3DS on its own went on to sell almost 90 million units of hardware. So it had its own successful journey. But the key lessons I share in the book are, are about salesmanship. It's about problem solving. It's And it's about turning a difficult situation around in order to, to have long-term success in a particular business. This was just part of your journey, and it really gets to the importance of building relationships with those around you. And you were remarkable in your ability to build those relationships in particular with Mr. Awada. And there was another anecdote in the book that really struck me. And that was about the we and the launch of the we. And we're going to talk about that coming up next. You're listening to GeekWire. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm speaking this week with Reggie Fisame. He is the former president and COO of Nintendo of America and the author of the new book, Disrupting the Game, From the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. Reggie, fast forward to the launch of the Wii. And for folks who don't remember this, of course, this was the innovative motion-controlled system that Nintendo came out with. And the killer app, in many ways, for the Wii, for lots of folks, was Wii Sports. And as it was launched in the US, Wii Sports was bundled with the Wii console. However, it was not that way globally. And if Mr. Miyamoto had had his way, it would not have been that way in the US. And it really, as you write in the book, was a key to the success of the Wii because you remember everybody was playing it. It was an experience unto itself between the hardware and the software. This was an argument in the most professional sense of the word that you won. Can you tell us that story? Sure. You know, and again, uh, as you correctly summarize, Wii Sports was just a critical piece of the launch software for the Wii. The, the other key piece of software uh, was the, the fully imagined at that point Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. And so the vision for the Wii was to expand the gaming universe to get more and more consumers playing video games. That's why Nintendo created that innovative motion control, you know, one-handed controller. So with clarity of the vision of what it was that we were trying to achieve, now it was a thought process of what's the best way to make that happen. And I advocated that we needed to include Wii Sports as part of the overall proposition. It would be 
the common touch point that every consumer would have when they would first connect the system and, and start to uh, make their me's and to start to play. Uh, it would be a, a game that anyone could pick up and play and participate in, which was just so important. And, you know, in sharing this idea with Mr. Miyamoto, he was very angry at me. And, and he told me, you know, Reggie, Nintendo does not give away software for free. You know, that is not <laughs> what we do. And, you know, what was interesting, Todd, is, again, because of my own personal journey and personal experience with Nintendo products, I actually knew that, in fact, when the strategy called for it, the company did give away software for free. My version of the Super Nintendo Entertainment System came with Super Mario World, and that was bundled in. And I very clearly reminded Mr. Miyamoto of this fact <laughs> that, you know, when when the need arises, we, we do include software. And what's what's really interesting and what I share in the book is that while the company was warming up to the this idea that, yes, we should include some way for the consumer to have a great initial experience, Mr. Miyamoto and the development team went so far as to create a different piece of software that, uh, that could achieve the objective. And they were trying to convince me that this alternate piece of software would be uh, a great idea. And it's something that in the end we called uh, We Play. And uh, a demo, basically, not, it, not a full-fledged game. It, it, it was a collection of mini games. There was no uh, connective tissue between the different games. Each of the games was quite fun, but there wasn't connective tissue the way there was with the Wii Sports uh, collection of software. So again, imagine you know this this difficult conversation, um, small group of people that we're having, including Mr. Awada, Mr. Miyamoto. They're trying to convince me that we play is what we should bundle in. And I surprised them by coming up with an alternative idea that we should take we play and actually bundle, bundle it with a Wii remote. That by doing so, we would actually get more remotes into people's homes. And now two people could be playing uh, Wii Sports together. Uh, you know, Mr. Miyamoto was not happy at all about that <laughs> situation. But to the way you frame the question, I had built so much trust at that point with Mr. Iwata. I had built trust throughout the organization that the team really started to think about what I was proposing and to see the wisdom of the idea. And so, you know, in all of the Americas, so North America, South America, as well as in Europe, Wii Sports was included in the, the Wii proposition. And those markets far outperformed Japan, where they decided to sell Wii Sports separately. And oh, by the way, Wii Play did end up getting bundled with a remote, and I think became the fifth best-selling Wii game of all time. You know, we sold tens of millions of copies. So those were two decisions uh, that I won, uh, and, and I was able to push over the end line. But it really does highlight how, in order for any business really to have long-term success, there are always these pivotal decisions, these pivotal moments, and it comes down to your salesmanship, it comes down to your ability to frame a strategic ar argument, and your ability to have built let me call it equity with the people who are going to participate in the decision to make the sale.
it also spoke in your case to the ability to navigate this complex global relationship, really, and the cultural differences between the United States and Japan. This came through, especially in your relationship with Mr. Iwata, which, as you write, went from more of a direct reporting relationship into something a little bit more like mentorship and friendship. And of course, he passed away a few years ago. I'm wondering, though, what your thoughts would be for others who have to navigate cultural differences, not only globally, but inside their companies, because you were doing it on this large, complex scale. And I think that through that experience, you have some interesting insights for things that all of us are now facing in terms of staying true to your values, while at the same time, respecting the cultural differences of others. You know, for me and, and what I highlight in the book, this is something you need to invest time and effort into pushing forward. And, and you know, make no mistake, in, in this world of, uh, you know, disconnected offices and, and business through screens, it's incredibly difficult. But I made it a priority to invest time, effort, communication with these key individuals that I needed to have successful long-term relationships with. It started with Mr. Awada. And, and before I was even an employee, I tell the story of asking for a video conference with Satoru Awada. And I learned later that it caused issues for the company. You know, who's, who's this brash American, you know, not, you know, all we've done is given him a job offer and he's asking to meet with our global president. But even then I recognized for me to be successful, I needed to have a relationship with this person. I needed to uh, build trust and uh, and it started really at that point. So you know, it's it's asking for what you need. It's a focus on building trust, uh, investing time. I tell stories about investing personal time with Shigeru Miyamoto, spending time with him over coffee, spending time with him over lunch, not necessarily focusing on talking about business, but you know, making sure that each of us had a mutual understanding of our approaches, uh, how we view different initiatives. So that's the other piece that I would encourage you know, the listeners to understand is you need to invest time and effort in these relationships in order to have the, you know, the core foundation upon which then as you deal with difficult business issues, you can navigate and discuss those with clear understanding. Reggie, if I could add one little section to your book, and by the way, I think the book is the perfect length. Um, it's very readable. I, I read it on vacation recently by the pool. It's perfect poolside read. If I could add one section, it would be a deep dive on whatever discussions took place behind the scenes on online multiplayer. My perception from the outside is that that's the one place where Microsoft really got its foothold, where, where Sony, to a lesser degree, really got its, its foothold and competed more aggressively, more effectively with Nintendo than they might have otherwise. Do you have any regrets? Uh, and I recognize you're on the business side, right? You're not on the development side, but are there any regrets or lessons learned from Nintendo not jumping more aggressively into online multiplayer? You know, so I'm gonna answer the question from two vantage points. First, you know, Nintendo's business philosophy has always been you know, to do things differently. 
to, to innovate in ways that play to the company's strength versus playing to the strength of others. And so, for example, when it came to multiplayer, Nintendo really excelled in you know, what we called internally you know, couch, couch play, right? Sitting next to someone, playing Mario Kart, sitting next to someone, playing you know, a variety of different games, Wii Sports. That in-person multiplayer really was a place that the company excelled. And that's where it, it placed a tremendous amount of f- focus. So then in order to do online multiplayer, the, the company really needed to think about what's, what's the new type of game, you know, what are the different types of experiences that we're going to need to create in order to now excel in that form of play. And candidly, it took the company a while to think that through, to come up with something that they believe would be fundamentally different and add value in a new way. You know, I would argue the company's core success started with their taking Smash Brothers, right? A key franchise for them, taking that online, which did exceptionally well. That begat a not quite a first-person shooter, kind of in between a first and third-person experience with a franchise called Splatoon, which has done incredibly well in the marketplace. So that that's the first part of the answer, right? The, the company is always thinking about how they're going to enter these markets uniquely, differently, and play to their own strength. The second thing I would highlight is, and, and this, this is where it gets into some of the cultural differences that we were talking about earlier. Culturally, the, the company didn't see a huge opportunity in online. And it, it was an area that the Americas and Europe constantly was trying to educate the company in Japan about the value of online play, investing in the online infrastructure, which needed to be done in order for the experience to be a positive one. You're absolutely right that, you know, of of the three main hardware competitors in the video game space, this is where Microsoft invested so significantly and it became their competitive advantage. Still is today, I would argue, in terms of their their connected gameplay. But it, it was it was a constant area of push by the Western parts of the company to encourage the development and the investment in the infrastructure. And uh, and I'm sure that conversation continues today. Just to complete this journey. After the Wii, of course, there was the Wii U on the console side, and that did not do spectacularly well, to put it kindly. (laughs) There were some fundamental issues that the company ran into. But then, of course, came the Nintendo Switch, which is the company's console today. What lessons did you and the company learn from the 3DS and from the Wii U that helped to lead to the success of the Switch? Yeah, so the, the things I would highlight. So first, when you see a business issue and you see the consumer reaction n- not being as strong as you need it to be or you want it to be, you know, the, the company learned a tough lesson in having to pivot quickly in order to turn the business around. For the Nintendo 3DS, the quick move was price reduction in, in order to get the system priced right and to grow from there. For the Wii U, the issues were much more fundamental, 
the software pace for Wii U was also quite challenging. Great games didn't come until later on in the system's life. But the other piece was that the, the core innovation of that system, what the company called the GamePad, which was a, a, a tablet-like device that was connected to the core console that allowed you to play games using both the screen you held in your hand and the big screen TV, the communication and the understanding of that as a core benefit really never took hold. So the, the issues with Wii U were much more fundamental, which meant that in its case, the company needed to quickly invest in its next system and to do so in a way that the company would bet would be successful. What we had learned with the Wii U was that what the consumers really loved was the ability to play games on their big screen TV. And when required to, they could then play that same game on the smaller handheld tablet. So this, this capability of, of having this game with you was really positively received. For the Wii U, the problem was you had to be within 30 feet of the core console, otherwise you would lose the connection. But this, this big screen plus small screen type of experience we saw as a, a real consumer insight. And it was that core insight that led to the development of Nintendo Switch, right? Where you can play on your big TV and then take the system out of its dock and, and play with it on the go wherever you want to be. So that, that hard pivot to create the next system, to do it on a very accelerated pace, really was the core learning. A couple others that I would highlight, at this point, Nintendo was realizing that while its own software was breathtaking in terms of its, its, uh, its consumer appeal and its level of polish, that the company needed to do a better job enabling both larger developers like EA and Activision, as well as smaller independent developers to create content for the system. So there was a lot of behind the scenes work on development kits and, and um, development platforms that would then enable much better ongoing support. That's another reason why the Nintendo Switch today is doing so well. I found it symbolic, at least, that as I was sitting there on vacation reading your book, my daughter, who previously was would have been playing the Xbox 360 with Kinect at home back when she was younger, was sitting next to me on the couch in the hotel room playing Nintendo Switch Animal Crossing, which she would normally play on the big screen at home. It was, to me, kind of a nice full circle moment and a demonstration of the value of the, the flexibility of this system that, that you're discussing. Reggie, bring us up to, to current times. I, I know that you've been teaching at Cornell University. I'm also curious, though, what are you playing these days and what are your thoughts on where games are headed, knowing that you're no longer at Nintendo anymore? And so any comments you make are not indicative of a product timeline anyway. I'm, I'm curious about all those things. Can you sort of catch us up? Sure. You know, so, you know, for me, my, uh, my journey now is helping that next generation of leaders. And so I'm working heavily with my alma mater, Cornell University. I was their inaugural leader in residence, so you know, made a number of trips teaching big classroom sessions as well as smaller classroom sessions. 
interacting with students, with faculty, with administrative staff. I sit on two different university councils and, and continue to invest a lot of time and effort on Cornell. I'm uh, active in board service. I sit on three different public boards, including the board of a special purpose acquisition corporation. So, And that keeps me very connected with the digital entertainment space and, and where all of the innovation is happening. Specifically in terms of gaming, I continue to play games. I play games on all of the various systems. But interestingly, a lot of my focus is on smaller developers, more independent game content. You know, I was a a judge for the uh, initial Tribeca effort in including games as part of their overall festival. And so I'm seeing a lot of early builds and independent games. And I I think that that truly is a bit, uh, that's a big part of the future I see in the video game space. On one hand, there are a tremendous amount of mergers and acquisitions happening in the video game space. Sony has announced some, obviously Microsoft is in the middle of, of looking to do a significant acquisition of Activision Blizzard. I think as a result of all of those mergers, that skilled developers are going to spin out from those situations. They may not be happy being part of a of a larger entity, and it's going to create a situation where a lot of independent, smaller studios are going to be created. Uh, and these are the ones I believe that are going to create the really compelling content. They'll they'll be starting fresh with those ideas that are stuck in their heads. Uh, they won't be committed to either, you know, to any particular platform. That's where I'm looking uh, deeply and spending a lot of time in terms of that type of independent development. Are you doing any investing, angel investing along those lines? I am not doing uh, angel investing. I'm doing some consulting um, for companies that I believe in, but not uh, not as an investor, more as an advisor. But again, what we also are doing is having conversations with a lot of these private companies and looking to see which ones have the ability to be a public company and potentially having conversations with them as to what it would take for that to happen. What role will VR, AR, the metaverse play in the future of gaming? So I am very bullish on AR. I I think that AR type of experiences are already very successful in the current video game space. I think it fits with how consumers play. There's there's a level of sociability that happens with AR versus VR, in my view. So I'm, I'm very bullish on VR tech and VR capabilities. I'm not as bullish on VR. And I can tell you, I've played just about every VR experience. I've seen all of the different headsets. And I'm, I'm just not convinced that for gaming, that it, it really is going to be the big opportunity. I see VR being applied in a variety of other spaces. A lot of business capabilities, I, I think, are quite, uh, quite interesting. In terms of metaverse, I'm also bullish on the metaverse. And, and I believe that... You know, when you look at what Roblox is doing, when you look at what Fortnite has done in terms of experiences that are social, experiences that are digital first, experiences where your avatar has meaning and you can personalize, 
with Roblox, they have a common currency throughout their environment. I, I think that the metaverse is going to be a very interesting space. And again, I think it's going to be led by smaller companies. I, I, I spoke at uh, South by Southwest and uh, my friends in contact at, uh, at Meta probably weren't very happy because I, I said that I don't believe in Meta's vision on the, uh, the metaverse. And part of it is for the metaverse to be successful, you're going to need to have participation by a variety of different companies, a variety of different players. Meta does not partner very well. Meta does not have a history of, of innovation, in my view. They're more of a fast follower. And so um, I, I took a few pot shots at their vision. But I, I do believe that the metaverse as it develops is going to be a very interesting space. I hope that this conversation is just an appetizer for folks. I really recommend the book. You go into so much more detail on the anecdotes and the takeaways that we're discussing here that it's really worth picking up and diving deep, not only from the video game perspective and the rest of the story element that you have, but but also the fundamental business takeaways that you have. And Reggie, I hope you go back and tell those agents that that original book idea was pretty damn good. I would read that book too about the life lessons, the things that you can take away from video games themselves. You know, it again, it's interesting. It's It's been a great uh, speech topic. The the speech, I get a lot of uh, lot of positive feedback too. You know, and it's it's interesting, Todd, I get I get asked now, so Reggie, you know, this, you know, the, all of the, the reactions have been quite positive. People are asking me, you know, Reggie, is there a second book in you? You know, can you do this again? And I, I'm not sure if there is a second book, but maybe uh, maybe that first idea will pop back up. I hope it does. It's such a pleasure. I learned so much about you from this book that I did not know previously and that I wished I had known when I was interviewing you in the past. And I, I just, I really enjoyed it. And it's, it's great to talk with you, Reggie. Well, Todd, thank you so much. Great to be with you and uh, look forward to be back soon, maybe, uh, maybe with that second book. Sounds great. Reggie Fisame's new book is Disrupting the Game, From the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo, published by HarperCollins. Find a link to the book and the audiobook in the show notes on this episode or wherever books are sold. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.